All right, thank you so much, Jill, Mike, Cody, the rest of the band for leading us in worship this morning. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. morning. It is great to see all of you here today during this festive weekend. It's hard to believe that it is the Sunday before Christmas. It's awesome to think about. This should be a time where we're excited in anticipation for the birth of Christ or the time when we celebrate the birth of Christ. If you've been here, we've been going through an Advent theme series where we've been looking at the different themes that are really surrounding this Christmas season. Usually it's hope, it's joy, it's peace, and it's love. And two weeks ago we discussed hope. Last week we discussed joy, and this week the Advent theme is peace. We're going to talk about peace and how God has brought us peace in His Son. So if you would, please turn to the book of Isaiah. Turn to or tap on whichever you prefer or use to Isaiah chapter 9. And we're going to be in Isaiah for a good bit this morning, we're going to be in Romans a little bit this morning, and then we're going to have some texts that help us out along the way. Um, But as you're turning to Isaiah chapter 9, I have to begin by saying, if you weren't here last week, then no worries, but I have to correct myself from something I said last week. If you were here last week, one of the things we talked about was how the wise men who came from the east, uh, one of the myths surrounding them is that they rode camels. This is a myth. The problem is, is I deduced that that means the main mode of travel for them would have been walking, and I found out through studying this week that that just isn't true. They would have ridden on Arabic horses, which was the primary means of travel then. So I'm sorry, I'll go ahead and fess up to that. I gave you all some misinformation last week. Truthfully, I just wanted to teach you all about grace, and I figured this would be a good way to do so, just a good object lesson, me being the object, obviously. But anyway, let's just move on from that. This morning we're going to be talking about peace. Isaiah chapter 9. And we're going to look at verses 6 and 7 to begin. Isaiah 9 verse 6 says this. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace. There will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it. And to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. He will do this. One of the reasons that that peace surrounds this season is because a title that is given to Jesus, the Messiah, this one who is to come, was that is the Prince of Peace. And you see it here, this Prince would bring peace and he would set his kingdom on earth and And of peace, there will be no end in all the world. And so this morning as we look at peace, I want to understand, what are we really talking about whenever we speak of peace? Just think of in general. Whenever we say peace, or God is bringing peace, whenever you hear the word peace, what comes to mind? It doesn't have to be even just biblical sense. Whenever you hear of peace, what comes to mind? If I'm being honest, whenever I ask the question this week, sometimes I just free write whatever comes to my mind. The first thing that came to my mind was miscongeniality. Whenever I think peace, I think Gracie Lou Freebush and her famous answer, if you know that movie at all, when she's asked, what is the world, the thing the world needs most? And she says, harsher punishment for parole violators, Stan. And then she adds to that, and world peace, of course. But world peace, everybody recognizes there's, there's some peace that is needed in our world. Whenever you think of peace, maybe you think like me, I think of rest from struggle or pain or hardship. I think of a peace that keeps me from having to worry anymore. I think of a peace that keeps you from being anxious anymore. I think of a peace that keeps people from, from, from 
going at each other's throats anymore, from nation against nation, race against race, people against people. And honestly, this is the picture that the word peace in God's word gives us. In the Old Testament, shalom, and in the New Testament, the primary and basic idea of the biblical word peace is this. It's completeness. It's soundness. It's wholeness. It's a condition of freedom from strife, both internally and externally. Isn't that what we, what we would all look for? Isn't that what we all hope for, this internal peace and external peace that's around us? Y'all, peace is a massive theme in the Bible. Over 200 times in God's word, this, this topic of peace comes up and that God is going to bring peace and that he ultimately is going to be our peace. And y'all, just for us, if we look at our world today, isn't there a grand need for peace? Isn't there a grand need? I mean, externally, just saying basic, externally, looking around us, nations are still fighting against nations, right? Sometimes it's just over land, over its territory. That's the Middle East world, right? Territory, that's my space. Then you have, even in our own country, in our nation, you have people fighting against people. You have Republicans against Democrats. You have white people versus black people. You have these type of people versus that type of people. You have higher income, lower income. You have people. There's just divisions. And what we find is there's conflict. There's not peace in our land. Not only do we see that there's this outer need, though, but my guess is all of us have experienced an inner need for peace, right? I'm sure there's nobody in here that's been anxious this year, right? It's been just easy, easy cooking, right? Not at all. All of us have experienced this anxiety in us or this struggle for peace within us, this desire to feel whole. And if this year doesn't uh, bring up anxiety or depression in some way for many of us, we've experienced it different sets or different moments or sets in our life. Well, today we're going to be looking specifically at this topic of peace and how it relates to Advent, how it relates to the coming of Jesus, how it relates to Christmas. And I just want to answer three questions for us this morning. One, it's why did Jesus come to bring peace? Why is this one of the key themes? Secondly, what did Jesus do to actually bring us peace? And third and finally, we want to ask, how can we actually have this peace today? Let's pray and then we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you this morning for the chance to to come together, Lord, to open up your word. God, I pray that all of us recognize that we get the opportunity to hear from you. Your word is your words to us. Lord, help us see what you want us to see. Help us hear what you want us to hear as we talk about this massive theme of peace during this season. Lord, bless us this morning. Speak to us. We ask all this in your precious and your holy son's name. Amen. Amen. So once again, first question we're going to look at this morning is why did Jesus come to bring us peace? Why did he come to bring us peace? I'd ask you to keep a finger in Isaiah. We're going to be in different parts of Isaiah, but flip over to Romans chapter 5, as we're specifically going to look at something real quick in Romans 5. And as you're turning there, I want to think about this. At first glance, to ask the question, why did Jesus come to bring us peace? It can almost seem silly, right? Like it seems obvious. We just talked about all these external struggles. We just talked about these internal struggles. It seems obvious why Jesus came to bring us peace. I mean, even think about the Christmas season. Christmas is one of the more anxious times of the year, and and it's anxious, and there's conflict there in the Christmas season, oftentimes. You know, and this is supposed to be the most wonderful time of the year, right? The happiest season of all, right? And what we find is there's conflict even in this. Y'all, I was reading this week and seeing how Christmas season brings conflict, and it's funny. 
Shopping is one of the main sources where we see conflict in our world today. Maybe that's a good thing of internet shopping. Maybe not, unless you want to beat up the postal worker for being two weeks late. But I read some of these stories this week about during the Christmas season, even conflict it brings. And some stories are this. While trying to beat out other customers for a discounted video game console, one woman shopping at a California Walmart decided that she would do what any sane person would do. She pepper sprayed any fool who got in her way. More than 10 people went down clutching their faces and grasping for air, but she got her Xbox. Another story I read is one store employee recalls a time when three women got into a fist fight over a single Furby doll. How many of you remember what a Furby was? For those too young to remember, a Furby is an electronic pet that was, for a brief period, the most sought-after holiday gift in the world, which as I look back, I'm confused as to why, because those things are freaky looking, right? <laughs> to get their hands on one, the women got into a, and I quote, a full-on brawl rolling around on the floor, kicking and punching each other. The best part of the story is these were three grandmothers. <laughs> Step in front of a grandmother and her grandson or granddaughter's uh, toy and you're in trouble. Y'all, as I read through many stories, there was a common theme. Women, I'm sorry, women were the main culprits in the fighting during the shopping season. But grandmothers, I'm even more sorry, it was mostly grandmothers. Same thing happened over Beanie Babies. One man told the story of whenever he was younger. He went shopping at this closeout sale. And they open up the doors and there's Beanie Babies sitting there. And he runs and he grabs it and somebody takes it out of his hand and he repeatedly steps on the old woman's foot until he pulls it back from her. Later on in the story, I found out he was nine years old. Like conflict is, is no stranger to us, even during the Christmas time, right? We, we are crazy. If you look at our world, honestly, we're crazy. The craziest story I saw was two men got in a boxing match over a calculator that was marked down from $10 to $5. Now, the only disclaimer I'll give with this is if you've ever gotten in a fight while shopping, I'm sorry, but it's silly, right? This is the disclaimer. But, you know, we live in a world where conflict is evident. Even the most peaceful season of all, or what should be the happiest season of all, we find ways to mess it up, Right? And whenever we think about God coming to bring peace, so often this is the peace that we recognize, this inner peace that we struggle with, this outer peace that we see around us. Whenever God gave Isaiah this word in Isaiah chapter 9, that a prince of peace is coming, that, that one who's coming where his peace will see no end, it will be forever, no doubt what they were hopeful for is he's going to come, he's going to redeem Israel. He's going to save us from our surrounding enemies. He's going to save us from the strife that's within Israel because Israel in Isaiah 9, the whole story of what Isaiah is saying is, hey, you are continuing to disobey. You're going into exile. God is about to discipline you. Whenever Jesus came, whenever he came on the scene, what did the religious leaders think the peace that he was coming to bring? They thought he was coming to bring this peace around them. Redeem us from the Romans. Redeem us from, from the people who are trying to come to our temple. Give us peace from our enemies. Whenever we think of Advent peace and Jesus being the Prince of Peace, the primary reason that Jesus came to bring peace has nothing to do with what's going on around us. It has everything to do with our relationship with God. Think of it like this. Our primary need for peace is not horizontal. It's vertical. It's not with other people. It's not even just within ourselves and our own anxieties we get from day to day. It is ultimately with our relationship with God. We need peace with God. Now, to make more sense of this, I think Romans 5 really sheds some light on this in a way that's a little bit more blunt than I think we often talk about. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11 say this. Verse 6, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. 
For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see two while we statements here. While we were weak, while we were still sinners. You know, I've heard these a lot. I'm sure many of you, if you've been around church very often, you have heard Romans 5, 8 plenty of times. And we talk about this. We're okay with maybe saying, you know what, I'm not like God. I'm, I'm, I'm ungodly. Okay, I get that. Many of us are even okay with saying, hey, yeah, I'm a sinner. Okay, I, I get that. We maybe aren't okay with, with how bluntly God's word puts it at times. But I want you to see where Paul takes it. He says, while we were still weak, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But why did we need peace? Look at the last part he says here. Verse 9, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we save by him from the wrath of God. Listen to the next while we were statement. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Do you hear that? says, while we were still enemies of God. This is a, as blunt as Paul could put it. He, he says, if, whenever we're born humanity, we are born sinners, but as sinners, we are born enemies of God. There is enmity between us and God. There is division between us and God. There is a need for reconciliation. You know, the very nature of the word reconciliation is two parties have a problem with each other. Now, with us and God, we know the problem is us. But there's a problem, and you need somebody to come and reconcile the differences to bring these two together. Whenever Jesus came to bring peace, he came to bring peace to enemies, us and God, to reconcile us back to God. I like how, how the website, GodQuestions.org, which is a great resource, they answer all sorts of questions about the faith. It says this, to be an enemy of God is simple. It's to oppose the presence and purposes of God in this world. In other words, it's to live for our own purposes rather than God's purposes. It's to live our own way rather than God's way. And in this way, we all are born enemies of God. Now, if we really think about that, y'all, that can be a tough pill to swallow. Because most of us, I would think, would probably be like, I'm not an enemy. Even whenever I was, I was born, I don't feel like I was an enemy of God. Yeah, we were enemies of God. Living for our own way, living for our own vices. James 4.4 James is talking to a group of people who are struggling to live out this worldly wisdom. And he's telling them, look, you need to have godly wisdom, this wisdom from above. And he tells them in James 4, 4, he says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You know, it's this clear. If we seek to live in the ways of the world, for the world, we are living in an in, in a way that needs to be reconciled with God. We're living as enemies of him. Why did Jesus come to bring us peace during in this time? Primarily because there was a great conflict between us and God. We were his enemies. And we needed a mediator. And Jesus is that mediator. But this is very different. This isn't a normal peace deal. Usually if you have two people that have a problem with each other and you have a mediator, the mediator comes in. Doesn't get too involved, right? He usually tries to help reconcile differences without getting too involved. You don't want to take a side, right? Jesus is very different in this regard. I want you to flip back over to Isaiah. I want to look at Isaiah chapter 53, and I want to show you something here. Isaiah 53, and we're going to look at verses 3 and 4. 
Isaiah chapter 53, verses 3 and 4. And as we jump in here, Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. It's kind of catchy. That's how you can remember it. 52, 13, 53, 12. These are some of the most rich theology of who Jesus was, what he came to do that we have in all of Scripture. And I want to read you several verses. Isaiah 53, look at verse 3. This is Jesus. It says, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten, and afflicted. Listen to this, this terminology. 700 years before Jesus is born, God gives Isaiah this vision of this is what's going to happen to Jesus. How do you know for certain we are enemies of God? Look what we did to the Son of God. Look at what it says. Jesus came, and he was despised and rejected by humanity. He was a man of sorrows because of humanity. He was grief-stricken because of humans. He was despised by humans, not respected by humans, rejected by humans. Later we'll see that he was pierced, he was crushed, he was chastised, he was wounded. You don't do that to somebody that's your friend, right? And what we see, y'all, in, in the most, I mean, honestly, explicit way possible, God sent us his son but as enemies of God, we crucified him. We are all born enemies of God. And, and, and I understand this might be difficult to think about because we oftentimes maybe look back and know they crucified Jesus. Look, don't forget, just because we weren't there yelling crucify him, just because we weren't the ones who actually beat Jesus, just because we weren't the ones who actually spit on him, doesn't mean we're a part of the crowd. Doesn't mean that we aren't a part of the reason that he had to go there in the first place, right? For our sake, he became sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was on the cross because of your and my sin. It wasn't because of those other people out there. It wasn't because of the bad crowd. We were a part of the bad crowd. And without Jesus, there is no peace that's possible. He came to bring peace because without him, there is no way for us as God's enemies to have peace with God. So why did Jesus come to bring us peace? Because we were enemies of God. The second question is, why did Jesus, or what did Jesus do to bring us peace? What did Jesus do to bring us peace? Well, once again, y'all don't let this be numb because you've heard it before. This should be shocking. What did Jesus do to bring us peace? He let us kill him in our place. Listen to what Isaiah 53, 5 says. It says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed. For our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement or the punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Now listen to this. He was pierced. Why? For you and me. He was crushed. Why? For you and for me. He took whose punishment upon himself? He took our punishment on himself. And by his wounds, he brings us peace. To bring us peace, he took the wrath that we deserve. It doesn't make sense. Many of you maybe saw the movie that came out several years ago called Unbroken. Unbroken. It's this story of the guy named Louis Zamperini. And as I was thinking about this, I was trying to think of examples of what's maybe like an example or an illustration that kind of shows us how Jesus loved us. You know, I was thinking about this story of Louis Zamperini. If you don't know, he, he, there's a long story. He actually writes a biography about it. I've heard it's incredible. I haven't read the book, but looking at a small list of his life, it's incredible what he achieved. 
But he was, a, he was a fighter during World War II, and his plane got shot down. He was stuck in sea, or at sea, for 47 days with no food or drink. Survived 47 days out at sea. And then he was captured by the Japanese and brought into a concentration camp, where he was a prisoner of war for two and a half years. During this two and a half years, he said, they underwent some of the most excruciating torture you could ever imagine. I read through some of the lists, but I don't know if I really thought it was fitting to read from up here, but just one of them that I think makes sense. For them to live, he said, we lived for two and a half years on people giving us rations where you could see maggots in it. You could see pieces of glass. You could see pieces of sand. You could see things that would chip or cut our teeth or mouth if we even chose to eat. That doesn't account all the other ways that they chose to torture them. Well, the thing that makes Louis stand out above everybody else is, is, hence the name of the movie, Unbroken. This man was relentless. I mean, you could not break his spirit. And because of that, it made the Japanese uh, soldiers really angry, to say the least. He became a target for them. He became an example for them. It was said at one point that they tried to break his spirit so much that they had him stand in a line, or he stand, they made him stand, had all the other 200-plus prisoners get in a single-file line, walk by, and punch him. If you did not punch him, you could be killed or you could be hurt just as easily. He went through that, still stood. If you've seen the movie, the, the most, I mean, just intense scene of all of it, whenever he's holding this beam above his head, and he's getting punched and kicked and hit and beaten, and he will not go down. I think it said 37 minutes. I don't know if I put it in my notes, but it was like for 37 minutes, he held this up above his head, and you couldn't break his spirit. Long story short, eventually, the war ended. He came back to the United States. He comes back here. He struggles. He has no peace. He has PTSD really bad. He's angry. He's frustrated. And he said his mind is set on, I'm going to go back one day. I'm going to find the soldiers, and I'm going to take care of them myself. One day, he, he actually uh, was asked by his wife to go to a Billy Graham crusade. I'm guessing maybe you've heard of Billy Graham. He's sort of a name around. But he went to this Billy Graham crusade, and during it, he said he wanted to get up and leave. Eventually, they left that night, and he said, don't ever bring me back to one of those again. Well, the wife asked him the next night. And he said, I'll go under one condition. I won't stay for the conclusion. I won't stay for the response time, as maybe we would call it. But he went, and the story would have it, he came to faith in Christ that night. Years, years, and years later, he got to go back to Japan. He got to meet some of the soldiers that tortured him. And the way the story goes is everybody in the room was shocked because he went up and hugged each one of them and said, man, I don't hold it against you anymore. Jesus forgave me. I can forgive you. And the way the story goes is all but one came to faith in Jesus that day. You know, I've thought about that story, and I read a few other stories this week of a man, actually, where his son was killed in Kentucky. This was, I think, 2015. And whenever his son's murderer was being executed, or not executed, whenever he was being tried for the murder and convicted, before the guy got to walk out of the courtroom, he walked over and hugged him and said, I forgive you. There's another one I see of a woman who, who her son, three-year-old son, is just outside playing, gets shot by a drive-by. She ends up adopting the guy who killed her son. You think, how do you do something like that? What kind of love does that take? But y'all, what I want to tell you is what Jesus did for us is still so much more than any of those. Let me explain why. As I've thought about this, these grand stories miss one common element. You see, Zamperini forgave his torturers after he was tortured, after the torture was done, after he came back here and years had passed. Whenever he went and he forgave them, there was no war anymore. Japan and the U.S. weren't at odds anymore. The war was done. They weren't enemies 
anymore. He just didn't enact vengeance on them. You find in each of the cases of, of the people that forgave their son's killers, the killer had no problem with the parent, didn't even know them. They weren't enemies. And forgiveness came later. But y'all, the, the shocking matter of what Jesus has done for us is that God showed his love for us in that while we were his enemies, not after the fact, not after things had been taken care of, not after there was peace, to bring us peace, while we were his enemies, he chose to die for us. If you think about Jesus dying on the cross, it doesn't make sense. While he's dying, he's saying, God, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It's almost as if while God is up there, he's still saying, I am doing this for you. It's for you. All this is for you. Yeah, you're beating me, but it's for you. You're crucifying me. This is yours, but I am taking this for you. What kind of peace did he come to bring us? The only peace that truly matters in this world is peace with God. We were broken. We were separated from him. We should be overwhelmed by the sacrifice Jesus has made to bring us his peace. And y'all, there's even more with this. You know, at best, you would think of what Jesus has done for us. Maybe we can just sweep the floors of his mansion and the kingdom one day, you know. Maybe we'll be his servant one day. John 15, 15 says something different, though. Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, I don't call you my servants. I call you my friends. Like, think about that. We're enemies of God, but now he says we can be a friend of his. Y'all, whenever I was at seminary at Southeastern, the promised land, modern-day promised land, while I was at Southeastern, I used to always joke around with people around me and talk about how I was friends with D.A. You know, me and D.A. are friends. We go to coffee, you know. People would always go, who's D.A.? I'd go, oh, Dr. Dr. Aiken, you know, just the president of the seminary. Like, I'd always joke about that. I didn't really know D.A., Dr. Aiken. I just said D.A. because I wanted to act like, you know, we were cool with each other. It's kind of the name drop thing, right, where you drop a name and try to make people think that whatever. It was just always a joke, obviously. But think about how much should we name drop Jesus? Just being honest. If you're a follower of Jesus, you say, yeah, God, Jesus, he's my friend. How much should we name drop Jesus? How much should we recognize and talk about Jesus and what he's done for us? Why should it bring us joy in the midst of Advent for what God has done for us? He's our friend. And it has nothing to do with what we've done, but all because of the fact that he brought us peace by taking our punishment for us while we were his enemies. Now, y'all, to transition this, I think the question would be, maybe what some of you are thinking. He hasn't just lost his hair, he's lost his mind. Wrong holiday, Merrick. This is Christmas, it's not Easter. Why are we talking about the resurrection? Why are we talking about Jesus dying for our sins? Because this is the whole point of Advent. This is the whole point of celebrating the birth of Jesus. It's the Savior of the world. It's the one who came to save us, the one who came to be our Lord. When we celebrate the birth of the Prince of Peace and when we sing about peace on earth, this is what we're talking about, that God has brought us peace through his Son. And at Christmas especially, we're reminded of the peace that Jesus brought to us in allowing us to be reconciled to God. But also, there's more to this. His death and what he did for us matters because there's more to this. It brings more to the story. This isn't the only type of peace that Jesus came to bring. If you remember in Isaiah chapter 9, I said earlier, it says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. So in some ways, you have to ask, did Jesus fail? <laughs> Obviously, there's, there's, there's not peace all around us. 
Well, because Jesus came to bring peace between us and God first. But one day he's coming back again to make peace with all things. To make peace in the world. To bring his kingdom back. We've talked about this the last two weeks. The hope is he is coming back. Our joy is one day we will be with him. We will be in his presence always. And just as Jesus has brought us peace with God, we can know that one day he will come back and give his peace to all of the world. Advent is a reminder of this. He was good for his promise then. He will be good for his promise in the future. So what do we do in the meantime, I guess is a good question. We're in the already but not yet time. We've already been connected to Jesus, but we're not yet with him yet. We've already been given the joy of relationship with Jesus, but we're not fully with him yet. We've already been given the peace of a relationship with God, but we're not in his kingdom with him at peace just yet. What do we do in the meantime? Or does Jesus just say, wait, just tough it out? He doesn't say that at all. John 14, 27, before he's taken to the cross, he says this to his disciples. John 14, 27, he says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Don't let your heart be troubled or fearful. You know another way to say that? Don't be anxious. My peace I give to you. You know, whenever we experience anxiety and worry in this world, if you're a follower of Christ, you have the remedy. It's Jesus. And to answer that question, let's look at the last question. Why did Jesus come to bring us peace? What did Jesus do to bring us peace? Lastly, how can we have his peace today? I want you to look at one verse, also in Isaiah. Turn to Isaiah chapter 26. And I think in this verse, we get everything we need to know about how do we have peace now. Can we have peace to now? What does it look like to have peace today? Isaiah 26 and verse 3, it simply says this. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Listen to that again. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is fixed on you because he trusts in you. Yo, in this one verse, we get the how, the when, and the why of peace now. How can we have peace? Well, you keep him in perfect peace. How can we have peace? From God. This verse tells us that you keep him in perfect peace. God is the one who gives us peace. Y'all, whenever you experience anxiety or fear or doubt or struggles or worry or whatever, you're not going to resolve those in your heart by things of the world. It's just not going to work. There's not enough TV that can drown out the sorrow that you feel at times, right? There's not enough busyness that you can get to. There's not answers here. You can go to yoga all you want to, but it's not going to give you all the peace that you need, right? All the peace and anxiety and stress that we find in this world, there's only one source and one remedy for the stress we find here, and that's God. He gives us perfect peace. You keep him in perfect peace. We've talked about this every single week the last three weeks. It's kind of been the theme verse, Romans 15, 13. Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. How do you get joy and peace? The God of hope must fill you. He must fill you. You see, the source of our peace is God. It comes from him. As I said last week, Augustine, in his book Confessions, he says this, Our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. We only find rest in Christ. So how? From God. God is the source of peace. Secondly, when? When will we have this peace? When will we be able to have this? Notice the verse again. You keep him in perfect peace when? 
when our mind is fixed on you. When our minds stay fixated on Jesus. Y'all, naturally, we do not focus on Christ. We don't. Naturally, whenever troubles come, whenever anxiety builds up, most of us don't do this. And naturally, none of us do this. We don't naturally run to God. If you're like me, I run to fix first. Then when I realize fixing doesn't work, I run to complaining next. My wife gets that earful. I run to something else next, and then something else next. Well, the whole time God's saying, you're only going to find it here. You keep him in perfect peace when? When our minds are fixed on you. Galatians 5.22, we talked about this once again last week, this fruit of the Spirit. Peace is one of the fruits of the Spirit, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. The only way you bear this fruit of peace in your life is to stay connected to Jesus, to stay fixated on Jesus, to stay focused on Jesus. Now, I know I've said this before, and I feel like sometimes I've worked through this in my own life. What about whenever it's really hard, though? What about whenever times are really tough? What about whenever finances really get to be a struggle? What about whenever I'm about to graduate college and I have no clue what I'm going to do with my life? What if I'm 30 or 35 or 40 and I have no clue what I'm going to do with my life? You know, what if? What, what, what? All these things come into us. I want you to see Philippians 4, 6 through 7. An often quoted verse, though I don't know if many of us follow it very well. I know I have to come back to it often. But what about when hard times really come? Philippians 4, 6 through 7 says this. Do not be anxious about anything. That's a pretty holistic word, right? Do not be anxious about anything. What we want to do is, but God, you don't understand my situation. And God goes, no, I do. Do not be anxious about anything. But when you are anxious, what? In everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your request known to God. And what's going to happen? The peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. If you want to get through the hard times, it's only through Jesus. If you're struggling with anxiety, and I know in a room this size, a lot of us are, when our eyes are fixated in Jesus, that's only when it's going to dissipate. When our eyes are focused on Jesus. Notice it says that he guards our hearts and minds. When we run to him, he guards our hearts and minds. Once again, Augustine said, our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. I think you can also say it this way. Our hearts will become restless if we don't continually keep our eyes on you. We have to keep our eyes on Jesus. Y'all, the easiest example is that of Peter. The famous story of Peter walking on water. It's a very simple analogy. He gets on the water. He's looking at Jesus. Jesus says, come out of the boat, which I always find funny. If I'm on, in a boat in the ocean at night and there's a bad storm and I see somebody walking on water, I might say, you come get in, but I'm not coming out. That's the truth. But Peter, being who Peter was, says, if it's really you, call me out. Tell me to come on. And Jesus says, come on. And he gets out and he begins walking on water. Incredible. Something he could never do on his own. But when does he sink? When he stops focusing on Jesus. The waves didn't change. The waves were there the whole time. The storm was there the whole time. The only difference was he was either fixing his eyes on Jesus or he wasn't. Y'all, to be here in this life, we will go through struggles. We will go through anxious times. We will go through pain. We will go through all kinds of stuff. Life is up and down. Many of you can teach me a lot about that better than I can you. But the thing that always remains the same is the sure and steady anchor of the soul that we've talked about. 
That's Jesus. Fix your eyes on him. You know what that means? Whatever the source of your anxiety, our source of peace is greater. If your source of anxiety is finances, fix your eyes on Jesus because he is greater. He will provide. If the source of your anxiety is relational, fix your eyes on Jesus because he is with you. If the source of your anxiety is emotional, fix your eyes on Jesus because you are not alone and he has endured worse. If the source of your struggle or your anxiety is on your future, fix your eyes on Jesus because he knows. He knows what's going to happen. He knows his plans for you. Fix your eyes on Jesus. In all circumstances, fix your eyes on Jesus. So that's the how and the when. Lastly, the why. How can we have peace? You keep him in perfect peace from God. When we have peace, whose mind is fixed on you and we keep it fixed on him. And why will we have peace? Because it shows something. It shows something about our heart. 26.3, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is fixed on you because he trusts in you. Who does God comfort? The person who whenever they go through anxious times, they say, I'm going to run to my God because he can handle it. He can help me. Because he trusts in you. When we fix our eyes on God, it shows that we trust in him. And when we trust in him, he will come through for us. Y'all think about this. Does it hurt when people don't trust you? No, it hurts me. I think of a very easy example. This is very menial to say the least. But for the majority of mine and Emily's marriage, if we're going somewhere and we use the GPS, she knows I got to have the GPS in my hand. Got to have the phone in my hand. If Emily's holding it, there's anxiety that rises up in me. Like all kinds of whatever. And at the amount of time she's had to tell me, trust me, I can look at a phone and I can say turn right. The problem is that she tells me 100 feet from turning right, not a mile in advance. We've worked on that. But it hurts whenever somebody doesn't trust you, right? How about does it hurt whenever a kid doesn't trust you? How about does it hurt if you find out that your friend has talked to somebody else about their struggles, but they don't even trust you enough to come to you with the struggle? It hurts. Because it shows that they don't trust you. And what is God saying here? I will keep you in perfect peace. Look at me. Trust me. Do we have a reason to trust in God? <laughs> Haven't we already talked about what he's done for us? Yo, this is part of the point of Advent. Is we look back and recognize God has done what he says he's going to do. He is going to do what he says he's going to do. And in the meantime, I can trust him, that he's going to be with me, that he's going to guide me, that he's going to give me his peace, he's going to give me his joy. Now, the Advent season is just a reminder. Our God does what he says he's going to do, and we can trust him. I want to end by simply saying this. I want to look at verse John, or, or chapter, sorry, at John 16, 33. And I want to end just by reading this one verse to you. It says this. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In me. In Jesus. That's where it comes from. In this world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. That's our friend. He's the one who's overcome the world. Y'all, this Christmas season, delight in what God has done for you. Rejoice at the peace that he has brought us. Rejoice at the peace he's going to bring us, and trust him for the peace that he can bring you now. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I can't help but start by praising you for what you've done. 
God, praising you because I remember my life before you. And to think that I lived as an enemy of yours and yet you still showed me your grace is amazing. God, anybody in this room who's a follower of you, they once were an enemy of yours. God, help them see the gratitude that should be shown because of what you've done for us while we were your enemies. God, I pray that the people in this room who have experienced this unrest that just hasn't gone away, this, this struggle with life, I guess you could say. Lord, there's people in here, I'm sure, still are in the enemy phase. God, they don't have peace in their heart because they don't have peace with you. And I pray this morning, Lord, that it would be the day and the time that they would surrender their life to you. God, I pray for those in here who are followers of yours that we'd recognize you are God and you can handle it. All our anxiety, all of our worry, all of our pain, all of our struggle, you are big enough. You can handle it. Help us trust in you. God, this morning, convict us where we need to be convicted. Probe our hearts this morning. And help us respond to you in faith. We ask all this in your precious, in your holy son's name. Amen. On ending, I just want to ask two questions to you. The first question is this. Do you have peace with God? Do you have the peace of Christ in your life? Hear me, everybody in this room is in one of two camps this morning. You're either a friend of God or you're an enemy. How can you know? Well, what do you live for? Do you live for yourself, your purpose, your ways, or do you live for God? James 4 gives us pretty clearly. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. And I would ask you this morning, maybe this morning you have felt an unrest in your heart. Maybe you've tried the church thing out or tried the Bible thing out or tried other things out and you've never felt that rest. Maybe it's because you've never placed your faith in Jesus. You've never really repented of your sin. You never really turned from your sin and said, God, I want to follow you. I would ask you this morning, would you repent and surrender your life to Christ? The second question I would ask is, if you are a follower of Jesus, I would ask, are you living in that peace this morning? Are you really going to him for your peace? When anxiety strikes, what is your knee or what is your gut reaction? What's your reflex? Is it running to God or is it running to other things? Are you focusing on Jesus during this season? Are your eyes on him? Ultimately, do you trust him? Do you really trust him? That he will do what he says he will do. That he can do what he says he will do. Y'all, I'm positive this morning with a year like what we've had. There's many of you that come into this room today that have a lot on your heart. I would tell you during this time, lay it at the feet of Jesus. He can handle it. He can handle it. Respond to him this morning where you're at, where you're seated, however you choose to do so.